we were in the middle of asking some questions concerning the defining characteristics of mind and there were a few hands that were up with questions does anybody have further questions they'd like to ask Yes. Мне кажется, что я понял то, что вот ответил в предыдущую сессию. Возникает вопрос. Есть положение, я, кстати, не знаю, насколько оно верно, что у меня может присутствовать только одна мысль, например. Как тогда получается, что одновременно у нас постоянно функционирует некоторая вот эта дефолтная установка наличия я, от которой разворачиваются боевые мысли и все прочее, mm-hmm. все прочее. И что-то еще. Ну, допустим, мое восприятие стало. Mm-hmm. Получается, что одновременно я. И как-то это очень быстро чередуется. Mm-hmm. То есть я для того, чтобы подумать про стол, я забываю, что это я. Uh, he heard somewhere in the teaching that oh, he assumed that uh, we can only have one thought at a time in our continuum, yeah, in our mind. And uh, so how can then coexist the thought is a pre-default uh, default setting, uh, believing in the true existent I, which operates all our will, uh, like decisions and so forth, making choices, and for example his perception of a table. So this thought of truly existent I, which is always circulating on the background, you're always being thought on the background, and another thought of, shall I go there, or uh, this is a table. So how can there be two thoughts at the same time? Hmm. The question is, how can there be two thoughts at the same time? grasping for uh, truly existent me as well as thinking to do something. First of all, let me clarify that when we talk about intention, intention accompanies both conceptual and non-conceptual cognition. So it doesn't necessarily require what we would call thinking. Thinking is thinking in terms of categories. Так, прежде всего, давайте разберемся а, тем, что именуется намерением. Да? Намерение сопутствует, а, присутствует параллельно с а, как концептуальными мыслями, так и неконцептуальными видами сознания. Под концептуальными мы подразумеваем здесь те, которые а, conceptually said we are calling that which makes in categories. Right. Под концептуальным мы подразумеваем здесь форму мышления, форму ментальной активности, которая сопряжена с мышлением категории. Да? Итак, намерение может быть как с прямым постижением, с, прямым, с непосредственным постижением, не концептуальным, так и концептуальным. Now, this gets a little bit uh, complex, of course. Безусловно, это становится немножко сложным. When we speak about non-conceptual cognition, there, like seeing, 
когда мы говорим о неконфликтуальном восприятии, например, о видении, да? There can be intention, you know, that draws us to, see, you know, seeing the table, as opposed to seeing the wall. But then there can also be the thought, which might come before that, and perhaps uh, verbalized, but not necessarily verbalized in our mind. I think I'll look at the table. Most of the time, we don't think that, we just look at the table. So, we need to be clear that intention goes on all the time. It's one of the five ever-functioning mental factors that accompanies each moment of our awareness. Well, no, that's not actually depends on which tenant system we're following. Vasubandhu says it accompanies every moment. The Sangha defines it as only an intention for something constructive, and so it isn't with every moment. In any case, within a non-conceptual cognition, the mind gives rise to an appearance of true existence. Appearance of true existence. And we perceive that, we cognize that. In conceptual cognition, not only do we cognize that appearance, but we uh, take it or understand it to refer to what actually exists. Conceptual cognition, not only do we, uh, you know, there's the Celtic song that we were talking about, the arising, in this case, an appearance of true, of true existence and cognizing it, being aware of it. So there's just simply that in 
non-conceptual cognition. And in conceptual, in addition to that, we uh, conceive, we think, that the way that this appears to exist corresponds to the way that it actually exists. Or in very simple language, we believe this deceptive appearance. Now, within any cognition, we need to differentiate, Sklupa, mind you, we need to differentiate the aspect of mental activity that cognizes superficial truth of something, what it appears to be or what it is conventionally, and there's also an aspect of that cognition which cognizes how it appears, how it exists. That's in each moment. So there's the cognition of table, and so within one cognition, two parts of the cognition. One part, what is this? It, uh, not necessarily. It is not necessarily knowing what it is, saying table. But it is perceiving the conventional truth of it. The conventional truth of it is a table. Первое – это постижение относительной истины этого объекта. Мы можем видеть стол, мы можем не отдавать себе отчет, что это есть стол, да? но мы познаем относительную истину стола, его столовость. Да? Мы ее познаем. So, we see, according to Gluck, not only a colored shape, but we also see a table. We see both. Okay, so that's one part of the cognition. And that can be either accurate or inaccurate. Now, the other part of the cognition is a cognition of how it exists. And here it's perceiving it to exist in a truly established way. I won't go into the definition of that, that's complex. Мы не будем вдаваться в детали описания вот этого способа существования, ложного, которого мы 
And that's inaccurate. So one part of the cognition is accurate, one part of it is not accurate, is glucosis. Okay, and within, I mean, the only difference in conceptual is that it perceives this through a category, table, and um, in terms of how it exists, it actually believes that it truly is existent, mm-hmm. or that it is truly, that its existence is truly established. Uh, now you were saying about non-conceptual. Yeah? I was speaking not, well, both non-conceptual and conceptual, and conceptual ads so, 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 on top of it. And here within the incorrect, so whether conceptual or non-conceptual, the part of the mind that is perceiving how it exists there is this appearance of true existence, then it, there's a, uh, now we get into, in the non-Galuk, they explain it very nicely, that what happens is that it makes a, um, what should we say, a twofold appearance, that the object is truly existent and that the uh, cognizer is truly existent and truly existent is me. There's a separate me. It was too long now. It is, as for the... Conceptual, non-conceptual. No, no, so, so same, conceptual or non-conceptual. When we are talking about the part of the cognition that's cognizing how it exists. Then the non-Galuk uh, explains this in a very nice way. Galuk would agree. That the object appears to be truly existent and the mind that's perceiving it appears to be truly existent as me. Non-Galupa explains it that way and Galupa would agree. They don't actually give this type of explanation, but I think it helps to understand your question, you know, the answer to your question. Galupa would agree. The way that Galupa would explain this is that there is automatically arising grasping for true existence of all phenomenon, and there is automatically arising grasping for true existence of the me. 
and that both of these accompany the cognition. That's the way Galupa would explain it, but it's not inconsistent with this other way of explaining it, and this other way of explaining it, I think, makes it clearer. So, automatically arising, uh, appearance of true existence of all phenomenon, so that's referring um, usually, you know, to the object of the cognition and the automatically arising, making an appearance of true existence and in the conceptual thing, believing it. Of me, that is usually the object of that is usually the mind. It doesn't have to be the mind. Nangalupa always explains it as mind. It doesn't have to be, but often it is. The automatically arising grasping for a true existence of all phenomenon would be would correspond to making an appearance of true existence of the object. And automatically arising, you know, uh, making an appearance of a truly existent me, and in the conceptual cognition believing it, would correspond to thinking in terms of the the perceiver being me. So, whichever way we want to understand it, it uh, comes down to the same thing. Which is that in terms of seeing the table and believing in a truly existent me, those aren't separate cognitions, they're all part of the same cognition involving various types of mental factors or, you know, gets technical because grasping for true existence is not a mental factor, but in any case, various ways of being aware that all occur in one cognition. So, one cognition, there are many different things that are going on that are uh, making up that moment of cognition. And we shouldn't think that they are in a sense disconnected to each other, it all makes one experience, one moment of experience. 
а истинный объект, истинный я и так далее и тому подобное, все они не дистинкты, не оторваны друг от друга, они образуют один а вот этот опыт, да, одно переживание, один а, когнитивный акт. Okay. Yes. Вот существует два способа восприятия мира. Это концептуальное восприятие и неконцептуальное восприятие мира. Можно ли сказать, что, скажем, концептуальному восприятию мира характерно в основе лежит аристотелевская логика, а к неконцептуальному восприятию мира в основе лежит парадоксальная логика, то есть одновременное утверждение и отрицание. Uh, he said that we have two ways of knowing the world, we are perceiving the world around us. One is conceptual and one is non-conceptual. Can we say that uh, conceptual uh, perception of the world around us is more, has more to do with the Aristotelian logic? Aristotelian logic. Aristotelian logic, yeah. Uh, and non-conceptual mm-hmm. more is paradoxical logic. I wonder what it is. So. So the question is, in terms of conceptual and non-conceptual cognition, does conceptual have to do more with Aristotelian logic and non-conceptual with paradoxical logic? I don't think that there's an equivalency here. The Buddhist analysis is, of course, speaking in terms of different systems of logic than the Greek traditions. But whether we are analyzing in terms of the categories of Buddhist epistemology, you know, ways of uh, how we understand uh, the way the mind works, or in categories of ancient Greek epistemology, nevertheless, human experience is the same. We have conceptual and non-conceptual cognition. They're just different systems for understanding. In Buddhist logic, the form of the logical syllogism used for proving a thesis is different from the form in Aristotelian logic. But that difference is irrelevant to your question. Whether we try to prove something with a logical syllogism or we try to prove something which would be done, let's say, from a Buddhist point of view in the um, Sautrantika Chittamatra and Svatantrika systems, or we try to prove something via paradoxes, which would be 
the Prasangika system, both types of logic involve conceptual cognition. That would be Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Svatantrika. Non-conceptual cognition does not arise based on uh, any line of reasoning. Now, we have to qualify that, of course. That explanation is true for, within Galupa, for the non-Prasangika systems. Horrible, everything is so complicated. So that explanation is from Europe standpoint non prasangika you see in the non prasangika systems we divide uh, inferential cognition and uh, not, uh, bare, bare cognition in terms of one being conceptual, the other being non-conceptual. So inference uh, is uh, conceptual and non-inferential is non-conceptual. But Sangaka makes a different distinction here. And for them, the inferential relies directly on a line of reasoning. And now, instead of calling it bare cognition, we translate the same term as straightforward cognition, which means it doesn't rely directly on a line of reasoning. Before, the definition was bare, bare of concepts. Here, it's straightforward. It means it doesn't go through a line of reasoning. Doesn't rely directly on a line of reasoning. So, still in the Prasangika system, the inferential cognition relies on logic and it's always conceptual. 
whether it is straight syllogisms or paradoxical logic. Straightforward cognition could be either conceptual or non-conceptual. So we can have conceptual cognition that does not arise relying directly on a line of reasoning or logic. So, I'm going to give an example now, which would be, for instance, we go through a line of reasoning of inference, and then we come to a uh, conclusion, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And so, uh, we go through that line of reasoning, that's uh, inferential cognition of the fire. Итак, мы движемся через цепочку верных умозаключений. Так, есть дым, дыма без огня не бывает, значит, есть огонь. И получаем понимание огонь. Right, we see smoke, and then we go through a line of reasoning where there's smoke, there's fire, and now we focus on there's fire there. We don't actually see it. Итак, мы рассуждаем в виде дым, а дыма нет без огня, есть огонь. Итак, мы фокусируемся на огне, не воспринимая его впрямую, да, мы фокусируемся на огне. So, when we come to that conclusion, прибывая к этому заключению, that's inferential cognition, that's conceptual. Есть у нас вот эта инференция возникает, или заключение, что есть огонь. Now we focus on there's fire there. That is conceptual because we're thinking in terms of the category fire, but it is straightforward cognition. It is not relying directly on the line of reasoning anymore. So we focus conceptually on the existence of fire without relying without at that moment actively relying on the line of reasoning. This affects very, very much our whole understanding of what's usually called analytical meditation and um how do I translate the other one? Jogom and Jagom. So discerning, well, anyway, analytical meditation and formal uh, absorbed meditation, whether or not conceptual, non-conceptual, it affects very much our understanding of how to meditate on voidness and so on. It's a very significant difference here. Especially when we think in terms of Western categories like intellectual understanding, unless we you know, make a very clear distinction of these various ways of knowing, then we can get very, very confused. 
особенно все принимали внимание западные концепции интеллектуального понимания да, и рассудочного постижения. Если мы не разберемся досконально во всех вот этих вот аспектах и нюансах, мы сказать, рискуем серьезно запутаться. Mm. Yeah. А приведите пример непрямого Oh, indirect is a terrible word here because I don't know what you're referring to. I make a very clear distinction between direct and indirect, explicit and implicit. Uh, straightforward, non-straightforward, bare and non-bare. If you don't make distinctions between these words and you just use direct and indirect in a very loose way for all of them, you're going to get enormously confused. Direct and indirect. Straightforward, not straightforward. And, and bare and not bare. Okay. Direct and indirect. This is used in terms of the non-Galuk systems. Which says that when you... Remember we were talking about uh, seeing the table, the mental hologram. The non-Galuks take non-staticness very literally. They take this, they understand the non-static nature of phenomenon very literally. So, when, uh, so moment one of the table <laughs> gives rise to moment two which is the perception of the mental hologram. So when we are perceiving the mental hologram in moment two, the table which gave rise to that, which is moment one, doesn't exist anymore. Actually, they don't say we see the table, they say we only see a colored shape. So, when we see the mental hologram of a colored shape, we directly cognize the hologram and indirectly cognize 
the moment before of the colored shape. That was external because it doesn't exist anymore. That's the difference between direct and indirect in how I'm using the terminology. Direct is right this moment, it's the same moment, and indirect is a time lag, you know, of a moment before. Like when we hear the radio signal from the moon or from Mars, there's a time lag. <laughs> Now, explicit and implicit has to do with whether or not there, the mind gives rise to a mental hologram of the object. This has to do with whether or not there is a mental hologram of the object of cognition. So, so explicitly, there is a mental hologram. Uh, so, the, I see a table. I see a table. So, explicitly, I perceive a table because there's a mental hologram of a table, and implicitly, I perceive uh, not anything else, or not a dog. There's no uh, mental hologram of that. So that's the difference between explicit and implicit. Bear and not bear, the difference is whether or not the cognition is through a category. Uh, whether or not the cognition is through the filter of a category. And straight, so that's conceptual or non-conceptual? And straightforward or not straightforward is whether or not it relies directly, meaning immediately, on the line of reasoning or not. Straight. Straight to the object, not relying on an object. Whether it relies immediate, you know, in the immediate uh, moment before on a line of reasoning or not. So, if it relies, then it is then it is not straightforward and if it doesn't rely it's straightforward now 
if we just use our Western languages in a sloppy manner, we could refer to all of these as direct and indirect. But if we translate it like that, we're going to get terribly confused because here are four very different distinctions that are being made. So what question are you asking? <laughs> and, by the way, although it might seem as though this is a grand uh, wavering from our topic of Mahamudra, it's not, because when we uh, look in more detail about these ways of knowing things, it gives us a much clearer idea of what are we talking about when we're talking about mind? Ways of being aware. I mean, it's aware of something. So how is it aware of something with a time lag, with uh, making an appeal, a hologram, without making a hologram, with uh, relying on a line of reasoning, with a category, without a category? All of them have the exact same nature. All of them have the conventional nature of mere clarity and awareness, the mere arising of a cognitive object and an engagement with it, a cognitive engagement with it, without there being some separate mind or separate me doing it. All of them fulfill that defining characteristic. Each of these ways of knowing have the same characteristics, the same defining characteristics. Mere clarity and awareness. The giving rise to a cognitive object and the cognitive engagement with an object. And that happening without there being a separate me or a separate mind that's doing it. Mind you, I left out that this mental activity can also be described from the point of view of physically what's happening. That would be in terms of the energy and so on that's involved with this. But that's not the same as the actual subjective experiencing of something. And 
всего этого процесса я описываю лишь субъективные переживания, то есть когнитивный аспект этого. А этому сопутствуют еще различные энергетические процессы, да, you mean uh, winds and so forth functioning. The winds, the brain, the nerves and so on. We're not, we're not denying that. Системы функционирования мозга, каналов, бедров и так далее, которые сопутствуют этому процессу. Мы его никак не затравили. С точки зрения просангипломатхемики был приведен пример концептуального, вот как он говорит, стрейт мышления с дымом и огнем. А для сравнения пример не стрейт концептуального мышления, тоже с точки зрения просангипломатхемики. So from viewpoint Uh, uh, straightforward conceptual thinking, uh, giving an example of smoke and fire, yeah? so would be not straightforward conceptual thinking. What would not be what would not be straightforward? It would be a not straightforward, yeah. Right. The not straightforward cognition is when we actually go through the line of reasoning where there's smoke, there's fire, and come to the Conclusion: That moment when we come to the so the, the process of thinking through the line of reasoning and coming to the conclusion, that first moment, a little phase of thinking the conclusion, that would be the conceptual inferential cognition. The one we should back up by the previous moment of logic. Yeah. Well, it is it is the final step in the line of logic. The whole process is the inferential understanding and then the next moment after that would be straightforward Well, let's not use direct and indirect. The, the straightforward. Correct. So the what will precede the straightforward conceptual cognition will be uh, not straightforward, one that relies on a line of reasoning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one could go through a line of reasoning to come to the conclusion of voidness. There's no such thing as truly established existence. And then stay focused on it straightforwardly without, and it's still conceptual, but you're not relying directly on the line of reasoning anymore. Получается, что просветленное сознание, это в котором отсутствует концептуальное мышление. 
So does it mean that enlightened consciousness is the one which uh, lacks uh, conceptuality? The uh, an enlightened mind. I mean, there's a there's a great deal of discussion of when uh, a mind gets rid of all conceptual cognition. But uh, if we follow the Galuk tradition on that, that would only be an enlightened mind. An enlightened mind uh, does not, from its own side. I mean, this gets into a big discussion, a big debate. But uh, the Galupas would say that the mental continuum of a Buddha, from its own side, doesn't generate and perceive categories. So it doesn't perceive things conceptually. However, it could be aware of uh, concepts of others. In others, mental continuum. Ум Будды или сопроцветленное сознание, посвященное мудрость Будды, Будды не генерирует концепции, не генерирует категории, но она способна познавать или постигать все концепции и категории других живых существ. Но сама их не порождает. Okay. Разве какая-нибудь деятельность, такая чисто интеллектуальная, типа игры в шахматы, она не является концептуальной? Получается, что Будда не может играть в шахматы и может только через сознание своего оппонента. Like any conceptual activity, like playing chess, for example, then uh, it is clearly a conceptual activity, like playing chess, yeah? Mastermind moves and so forth, yeah? So it means that Buddha can't play chess, yeah? Because he can't control it. Or he can play chess through the mind of others, or how? So the question is, playing chess is a conceptual, involves conceptual thinking. Could a Buddha play chess? I think we have to, I mean, I'm just speaking off the top of my head now. Obviously, this isn't discussed in the text. But, uh, Conceptual thinking has to do with categories, remember that. But uh, one can perceive cause and effect and so on, not necessarily through categories. A Buddha knows cause and effect non-conceptually. It's not through the category when you, you know, bang your foot against uh, something in the dark, then it hurts. So that's a general category of things, and our specific instances fit into that category. Buddha doesn't think in those terms. A Buddha doesn't think in those terms. Hmm? 
Well, there's a general category, like a principle, that, you know, uh, category isn't the, the precise word either. I mean, it's hard to come up with a, with a term here. But the, a principle or a law that bang your foot and it hurts, cause and effect. You know, just in a very simple level, uh, if we think conceptually about it, then any time that somebody bangs their foot, then we would think, ah, you know, bang the foot, that fits into this category of bang a foot, and then after that comes pain. And so then we would know conceptually you know, the relation between those two. A Buddha wouldn't think in terms of these categories, these laws. The Buddha would just know. Non-conceptually, not through category. So, the same thing in terms of playing chess. A Buddha would know. You move this piece this place, and that would happen, that would happen, that would happen, in a specific context, but without thinking in terms of rules. You know, this, I think if we put it in very simple terms, to play chess conceptually is to have all the rules in your mind and fit everything into the rules. A Buddha just plays, and the Buddha knows how everything works, but without having to constantly look in the rule book. Okay, that brings us to the end of our session. So we haven't been able to go further into the text. However, having an opportunity to ask some questions is always helpful and particularly as I said it sheds light more and more on the phenomenon of mind and to uh, really understand the nature of the mind we have to get to the most basic 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 defining characteristics so whether mind is conceptual, non-conceptual, whether it's any of these, um, you know, two sides of these, all these variables that we've mentioned, defining characteristics are the same. So don't think the defining characteristic of mind is that it's non-conceptual. That's not a defining characteristic. Mm-hmm. 
а верны для любого ума, будь он концептуальным, будь он не концептуальным. Любые из этих четырех вариаций пары, да, которые мы здесь рассматриваем, всегда помните, что ум, он всегда таков. Что концептуальность его или не концептуальность его, это не дефинитивная характеристика, это какая-то вторичная его функция, характеристика разновидности. Всем им присущ один набор из этих трех базовых качеств. Okay. Uh, let's end with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may act as a cause for really being able to successfully do this Mahamudra practice to be able to actually recognize the nature of my mind, both conventional and deepest, and through working with the mind, achieve enlightenment for the benefit of everyone. Накопленные благой заслуги того постижения, того понимания, которое нам будет входит в занятие на достижение духовных целей, на достижение просветления во благости живых существ, на успех нашего практики Махамудры, на постижение, достижение цели Махамудра, именно достижение абсолютной глубины, относительной абсолютной глубинной природы нашего ума, которая способна привести нас к окончательной цели.